Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. My co-host today is again David Hollenbach of Hollenbach Leadership. David, how are you? And I know you're excited about our guests. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. Thanks for having me. All right. So we got, again, Frank DeVille. We talked to him before part two. And Lisa, again, we all know him from The Wire. And they got a great song if you check out part one. But let's just jump right into it, Frank. You know, thinking about specific music and all this stuff and collaboration, what have you learned from Lisa kind of doing this kind of back and forth from working together in the song and stuff? What do you learn? What have I learned from him? Yeah. Well, you know, it's... (laughs) A lot. No, you know, seriously, it's um, we might have touched on it last week, but, you know, anytime, you know, I always like to um, people can uh, always bring something new to the to the team, uh, you know, a new uh, fresh set of ears. Uh, he's a really talented guy. He's got this 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 rap, this flow, like sing rap kind of thing. So it really works well with this with this song. So it brings a lot of that, you know, element, um, you know, we actually are both East coast guys, but he's from Maryland, Maryland. Yeah. I'm from Philly. So we got the East coast thing, you know, going on. So there's a lot that uh, it's hard to say exactly what those things are, but you know, when I'm working with people in out here in LA and people are, there's a lot of people who come out here, you know, to live the dream. So they're, they bring with them their, their cultural, their societal kind of things, you know, their tastes in music. And uh, so, you know, it brings a lot to the table. All right. Yeah. Now, David's the music guy. I'm the sports guy as I, he, we just had two sports ones. He likes sports as we've had some amazing major celebrities. Think about it in one hour, David, but go ahead, David, with your que- questions for these guys. Well, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, how the, the family of funk, came together uh <laughs> yes well um uh you know a couple of us have been friends uh wayman is one of my closest friends we have the same birthday wayman plays keys uh we ha- were in not at the same time but we were both uh, wayman was an original gap band member you know that charlie wilson and snoop dogg and i of course i toured with the gap band um the, the very last round 2016 2017 so I, you know, had um, was a side artist, you know, guitarist, and also did some producing in a, a lot of producing in the past. And so when the pandemic, you know, came around, um, you know, I was listening to some old tracks that uh, one of my uh, old writing producing partners had, um, you know, we had placed with uh, a YouTube channel and uh, me, one of our top, one of our singers, you know, started singing some of the to, you know, top lining some of the, uh, to the track. And I was like, wow, that's really dope. And so we just kind of, it kind of just came together very organically, you know, and, and Wayman came up with the name, the family of funk. He's like, he always comes up with these little, like, like we have a bass player and he named him Dr. Slap. And, you know, it's just, you know, and when you're working with different, about, you know, back again to what people bring to the, to the table, sometimes people look at you like, um, they, they bring, they bring like their own unique thing, like working with uh, certain like R&B and hip hop cultures out in L.A. Th- they all have nicknames for each other. That's where my name, Mr. DeVille, came from. And they don't even maybe they don't even know what my real name is. I don't know. But they just call me, you know, Mr. DeVille. So it's just kind of um, these kind of things just came along organically. And Wayman obviously came up with the, the family of funk and we started putting the band together and we had a couple other different members. But once we started developing the sound, we kind of um, went with, uh, I always liked the gospel type of drummer. So we got a real great you know, uh, drummer with like a lot of gospel chops. We got Dr. Slap, who comes from a completely different, uh, you know, he's Israeli, and but he's got a great funk, you know, feel on the bass. Like, um, so that's kind of how it happened. We're basically a young band, but we have a lot of history with all of our members. Yeah. 
And so, like, you know, we talk about specific things, Frank, about what you've been doing and all the different things with the music. What have you learned from the artist artists that you produce for that have added maybe some of that to the to to your to your group? Have you learned some things from working with these other artists that in your in your songwriting and things like that that you're that you add to some of the mix of what you're doing now? Yes, absolutely. You know, years ago I have well, I have two mentors, and one of them worked in AR at Warner Brothers, and he said, Frank, if you want to be on the radio, you listen to the radio. You know, and I, when I came out here from Philly, I came more for, like from a little bit of a rock background, a little bit of you know, disco and 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 hip hop and things like that. And and so when you're working on other people's records, you normally, you know, it's um we worked, when I say we, the, the team that I was working with, we worked sometimes 16, 18 hours a day perfecting our craft, working, you know, specifically for, you know, uh, major labels, uh, two major production teams. And so you learn a lot about the business. When we put the family of funk together, we came with a business mindset. We didn't just put the band together to go out and do a bunch of shows, came together specifically for a business mindset, coming up with a brand, a sellable, marketable brand, a marketable sound, marketable image. You know, because all those things um, are really very valuable. When I moved out here, I didn't, I had some, you know, experience in, I studied classical and jazz, but I didn't really know much about the business. So working in the business gave me a lot of insight into how to take a band and make it successful. You know, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it probably does. Good, David. Well, you mentioned you've got a background in in jazz. Well, I studied jazz. Yes. What what jazz artist had the most influence on your on your style? Well, so when I studied classical and jazz, I wasn't, I didn't, I wanted to learn the idiom. Great players of that day were studying, you know, classical, and and my jazz guy that I studied with. Uh, Joe Federico was like strictly like nothing else existed but but jazz. But he was one of the uh, original guys that transcribed Paganini for a lot of these rock guys that were out here. But I'm going to tell you some, you know, like the genius of someone like Django Reinhardt from the 40s. You know, and he was that gypsy guitar player. He played all that real fast stuff with just two fingers. And, um, you know, I just probably him the most you know i love you know i still read music out of the real book you know do some standards like uh Ciora or you know which is trumpet you know or or just uh, music by herb albert you know it's not i don't know whether that's really jazz but it's just it's pop maybe with a jazz feel and or like doing songs like donna lee all those kind of standards i just i, I love the bebop feel yeah that's great now, Lisa, let's talk about uh, specifically the wire. I want to get to the wire because that's why part two. Let's get to the wire <laughs> and that experience. Now, Frank, were you a fan of the wire when he was on it? I, I yes, but years. I don't. Even, when was that? When was that? Out? It was back. It's in Baltimore. We shot it in Baltimore. This is back in like 2003, 2004. I didn't get on there until like 2006, 2005. I want to say that. So tell I, us that kind of yeah. Go. Yeah, I owned uh, somebody. Um, I think I, I have the whole series and I watched it from beginning to end <laughs> way before I met this kid. This kid, sorry. Way before I met this dude. So tell uh, us so, the experience. Of, yeah, yeah. So you were a fan. Uh, so I'm asking yeah. more about your experience on it. Tell us about how that worked and how did that happen? You get on, get on the show. Um. So at the time, I had just moved with my parents from Massachusetts to Maryland. Um, we met a, a woman who's still in, in, uh, based in the area called Linda Townsend Management, very well known in the area, um, and in the industry. And uh, I worked with her for a long time. She basically groomed me, um, when going on auditions, teaching me, you know, what's when, you know, proper etiquette, things to do, different techniques and things like that. Eventually I wound up getting the audition for The Wire and I went, was all the way in Baltimore, which was an hour away. So I had to take off from school. My mom, you know, had to come pick me up in the middle of class to go take me. And um, beforehand, my dad was telling me how much, how important it was and, um, you know, what kind of show it was. So they kind of gave me a breakdown. They sat me down. You know, we watched the show. Obviously, I'm 10 years old watching this rated MA TV show. So I'm, you know, I'm just sitting here like, oh my God, like, you know what I'm saying? 
So um, went to the audition. Um, you know, the writer Ed Burns was in the room along with Pat Moran, the casting director, and it just went really well. Uh, by the time I got back home, uh, they were calling us, letting us know we got the part. So that's how I got to be on it. So what? What? How many? What kind of role did you have on it? Uh, I played the role of Kennard. Um, he was basically part of uh, Marlo Stanfield's crew, but as a, you know, one of the youngest members. And, um, you know, I was just a bad mouth kid, you know, causing mischief, cussing people out. And um, just like that. Not <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like that in real life. No, actually, yeah. um, but um, but yeah, um, I'm what I'm most notable for. I don't know if, you know, if you guys haven't watched the show. Uh, for anybody listening that, you know, um, if you haven't watched it or if you're watching it now, sorry, spoiler alert, you might not want to listen. But I'm most notably known for shooting um, Omar um, in the drugstore in the last season, probably the most loved and most known character from the show. Uh, rest in peace, Michael K. Williams, my big brother. And uh, yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes. Wow. Wow. OK. Good, David. Your question. Uh, um. I'm I'm curious about the concept of early in the morning and and how Frank how did you come up with that? Well, okay, so you know when I was with the Gap Band, um, we you know all those great songs early in the morning. You dropped a bomb on me, you know, um, yearning for your love, outstanding. We just I loved playing those those songs and. Um, you know, when we're putting the band together, we have you know a lot of original material, but also you know doing remakes or covers, you know, can really be advantageous. You know, there's a saying, you know, covers create crowds. People hear something that they like. A song like that is 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 absolutely timeless. And um, we actually have been working on it for a while, developing that sound. You know, we had worked, you know, with some uh, other teams, um, but it ended up kind of being like a throwback kind of sound and. Again, when we're looking for something in the pop world or to be on terrestrial radio or for something to be significant, you have to look at what's current now, you know? And so, um, again, my longtime writing and producing partner, Lamar Van Skyver, who's also one of my dear friends, um, we went in the studio and, and uh, you know, cut the songs. We, um, we brought the band in, we brought the, the singers in, um, couple of the other musicians and and we just you know made a, a like a funk disco pop version geared to like the 20 mid 20s to to 40 year olds you know and so that's really where it's at right now you know tiktok videos people are looking at a video or listening to a song for around two minutes so it's got to hit them hard it's got to let that beat and that's that's what's happening right now so that's what we did. We geared it strictly for that with, you know, mer um, merchandising, marketing plan. We have a strong, you know, PR team, great management team, Jeff Arcio, creative crew, who also manages uh, Liso and um, our, uh, our uh, PR, uh, Ruth Davis. They're all really excited about it. So some of these things actually, you know, being in the band, being, um, again, I'm, I sing and play guitar and we have two other two female leads a real strong female but then there's so much of the business is handled by creative crew and by Ruth Davis that you know behind the scenes to kind of market it so it's it's a great song people are really just loving loving our version of the track and it kind of does there's there's some similarities but also it's 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 very now it's very radio so what is your goal you two for your song what do you what, where do you want to see it go <laughs> I'm trying to see it go crazy. Um, I mean, I like, you know, I don't know if we had mentioned this before with um, the remix competition and everything, even that I'm excited for mm -hmm. um, to see what other people wind up doing with it, you know, taking uh, the song and making it their own or, you know, making making us hear a part or making us hear something that we didn't hear before from, mm -hmm. from the original. So um, I hope it goes crazy. I hope it's something that everybody's playing. Um, yeah. I think it's going to be dope when people listen to it i think they're going to enjoy it big time and it's going to make them dance for sure for sure, for sure. yeah it, it will that's right you know this 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 remix contest we're really excited about it because we have some international djs international remixers you know people from other countries again when you're collaborating they bring something that you might not a different direction you might not hear and with new kind of remixing tools techniques that could be you know younger older and so we're really excited about that we've got 
um, major radio stations committed to playing it. We had, like I said, the marketing team that, you know, when you have a good musical product, a marketing team can support that. If you don't have a good music, it all comes down to the musical product. Yeah. So awesome. yeah, we're really stoked about it. Such great stuff. Best place people can connect with you guys. Go where? Uh, for me, um, you can find me on Instagram and I'm on threads too. Uh, it's yeah. T-H-U dot L-I-S-O. And yeah, you can follow me there and find me there. So yes, uh, we're the thefamilyfunk.net, thefamilyoffunk.com. We're uh, uh, Facebook, The Family of Funk. We're The Family of Funk Instagram. And also my own you know, personal uh, uh, EPK is uh, frankdevillegreenfield.com. That's pretty much everything I've done for the past 20 years. It's all just, you know, boring, blah, blah, blah stuff. But <laughs> that's where you can find it. All right. We appreciate it, guys. Again, great part two. Appreciate you guys. And you're listening and watching the Thank new Thank you. Episode. And we'll be back in just a moment. We're back to Neil Haley Show. My guest today is Paul Hollis, author of The Hollow Man and owner of Hollow Man Publishing Series and also senior publishing. Paul, how are you? We're going to talk I'm about green. now the whole thing of like the secrets behind the scenes, right, of The Hollow Man and how you kind of came up with this. Because again, Paul, just for people to know, explain again what your role was and how you're not really the main character, but you are really the main character. Right. So, yeah, I I, I sort of was in the wrong place at the wrong time and ended up uh, um, as, a, as a red shirt guy uh, chasing terrorists around Europe. So um, what, uh, and, it's, and it's not, it's not really a James Bondy kind of a thing where I know everything. It was like I didn't know much of anything. But um, what what I felt like in in the writing process, what I what I shifted from there into the to the writing process was was the actual feeling of being there. So that's what we wanted to do is is to to make make the reader feel that they were right there with the main character on the streets of Paris or on Madrid or wherever they happen to be. And so. Uh, what that what that entailed then was was actually making coming up with something visual and sort of like writing a movie in 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 fiction format, and so so what I did was I used all the the visual instincts that people have the sight the smell the smell the taste the the hearing what was going on around them so so that is what was important there also characters dialogue is uh, as real as as if you were there so so accents were were included uh whether the characters used contractions or no contractions whether whether they used uh uh, uh, uh what am i trying to think of whether they use slang or not for example uh accents uh of course uh with uh, with french and and uh, the irish were, were especially outstanding um and and actually the Spanish as well, but but mostly there. So so what I try to do is put to to tag tag the the reader along with the with the characters to to understand and see see and feel what was going on within the environment that that we were working at the time. Okay, so you know based on all that stuff, you know Paul, and I'm listening to you. Um, it's it's got to be crazy that then you took that. To make it a little bit more action packed, but there's a lot of it's true. That's the thing. You keep saying, "Well, I wasn't like James Bond because you were kind of like in, Inspector Clouseau in a way." Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a that's a great comparison there. Um, yeah, about eighty percent of the book is about ninety percent true because of the best I could remember things. Um, I I kind of thought a little bit about um, um, things that I couldn't actually remember and then and I just kind of gave up and I sort of wrote something down but but probably 80 to 90 percent is, is about 90 percent true um, the what isn't true what didn't really happen that I know of were the characterizations of of scenes when I was not there present so I sort of made those up because they fit into the to the sequencing of the story um, and, um, and, and, but there are very few of those where I didn't, where I didn't really appear in a scene sort of thing. So, so yeah, about 80% is 90% true around there. Wow. You know, and, and that whole thing, 80 to 90% true is pretty, uh, impressive to say the least. 
but you the parts that weren't true how did you create that kind of give me the creativity knowledge on that well i <clears throat> i sort of assumed that actually i put i put those scenes in kind of not randomly but sequentially along the story because i, I didn't use flashback an awful lot so so it was kind of like what what went on with the story as it, as it went along so so what i what i sort of put into those scenes was was what i needed to get to the next scene where i was at right and so and and to, to have the, the the reader understand and see what it was these guys were thinking sort of behind my back and things that i didn't quite know at the time but i I had learned later in different and different uh, sequences of life, you know, sort of thing. So, I, so I put, so I kind of put them into into that sequence there of of, of where they fit into a, to the story to make it a nice, neat package, basically. And so that's the thing. And what do you, your fans that really love the book? What do they say they love so much? And you said that the, they love two and three even better than one. Yeah, I, I well, I think they do because they're because they're written better, you know, so the more a writer writes, the better he or she gets. It's it just as simple as that. You have to write, 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 and, and, and it will, it will become your own style and your, and your branding. If, if you're writing a series of, of, uh, of stories, then, then that's what you have to do there. So, so, um, uh, basically, uh, what, what the, what my fans are are are, are liking are, is the depth of characters, and they especially like Doc and Zeta. Uh, Zeta is a very very strong female lead person, and uh, and I I feel that sometimes the story is about her as much as about me. So so, and fans like that because it's like not all about one one guy and kind of things. So so you have a sort of a team of of in depth down to earth sort of people that think on their feet and, and and people like that so so that's what it, that's what i went after all right best place to go is the hollow man series.com senior-publishing.com and all these other places and follow paul on all the social media platforms and if you want to see book number four it's coming right yes it is the movie's coming more audio books are coming check out paul and if you want to publish a book today he is the man. Appreciate it, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Neil. You're welcome. You're watching and listening to the Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Strategic Wealth Strategy Podcast with our host, Alan Porter. Alan, what's going on, man? How are you? How are you doing today? Another hot day. It's going to be over 100 degrees here in North Carolina, but, you know, i got to bear with it all the time. Yeah, but you'll at least have warmer weather when I'm. it's colder in Pittsburgh. All right. So our topic today, August is National Make-A-Will Month. And financial professional Alan Porter from Strategic Wealth Strategies joins us to talk common estate planning mistakes and what we can learn from four legendary stars. First of all, does everyone need a will? Well, Neil, absolutely. Everyone needs a will. I had a will when I was 18 years old. Of course, I was in the military. But everyone needs to have a will. And we'll go over some things on the reasons that people do need to have the will. I mean, especially people with kids. You know, if you're a designator, uh, designator, uh, somebody to take care of your kids, if you both die in a car accident, what's going to happen? Well, it's going to go to the courts and the courts are going to decide uh, who's going to take care of your children. Uh, even if you don't have uh, children, if you don't have a will, it just saves you, your family, your friends, time, expense and headaches. But everybody's got to have at least a will and if not a trust, too. Aretha Franklin's estate was recently settled. What can we learn from her estate plan? Well, one of the problems Aretha did, she was a great singer, wasn't she? But Fair. I tell you what, uh, one of the problems she did, she handwritten her, she had a handwritten will they found under her bed, and it's been in, um, in court for over five years. Wow. I mean, their families, it costs their families hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, uh, and not, not alone just to, to talk about the taxes that she possibly pays on her estate. So that's the problem with DIYs, isn't it? Exactly. Because they leave, a, they leave a lot of things out. They don't cover things, and they don't update them. I mean, you should update your will every, at least every year. What happens if you get married again? I mean, they're, I'll explain a little bit more on that on a couple of these other uh, people I'm going to talk about today. All right, let's talk about Prince. We talked about that before. Oh, it's yeah, Prince the Entertainer. 
uh, 57 years old when he died, but he had no plan when he died. You, you know, looks like a lot of people out there. But the problem is, princes, if you don't have a will or trust set up properly, your state is going to go into probate. And many people don't know what probate is. Well, I've got a, I've got a definition for probate. It's a lawsuit that's initiated by you that you're going to pay for and you're going to lose. And I think it's still in probate. I'm not sure, but it's been over almost three years now. And what what's going to happen? The families are only going to get probably 15 to 20% of that estate because everything else is going to be for taxes because the government takes control of that estate. They will sell all the assets to pay the taxes on the estate. And that's what they're left with, 15 to 20%. And what's really bad is that attorneys are going to get 6 to 12% of that estate for legal fees. For proper planning, none of this would have happened. How about Kobe Bryant? He's, he keeps his plans updated, right? Well, he does keep his plans updated, but here's the thing. He forgot to include his newest uh, child in, in his will, and what a tragic accident that was. Uh, but... I mean, there's just all kinds of things, and they finally got the, the child in the trust and everything. But it, it took a couple of years to get all that done. And it, all again, that involves massive paperwork and expense that they don't need to do if they, you know, have a plan and properly execute that plan and properly update it. How about Audrey Hepburn? Well, this is this is one that I tell people about all the time. Uh, she had a massive estate, of course, uh, but she just had a simple will. It uh, give it to everything to her two children. Well, there's big problems in here because how do you exactly divide up something for your two kids? I ask people all the time, what are you going to do with your house when you pass away? And they all tell me, well, we'll give it to the kids. I said, well, you want your kids to talk to each other when they're when, when you're both gone? Well, what do you mean? I said, well, first off, if you have two kids, at least two kids, the number one person that's going to be benefiting from your estate is Uncle Sam through taxes. But let's say that you have let's say that you have three kids, and one of them wants to sell the house, get the money to pay for bills. The other two want to keep the house as an as a you know a income producing vehicle. Now you've created harsh feelings, and you know I, I know people, brothers and don't even brothers and sisters don't even talk to each other because of just these certain things. But I show people different ways to prepare uh, for things that can happen in the future, and you're not paying taxes on that. Any other tips for creating a will? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, what we do at, at uh, Strategic Wealth Strategies, you know, I, I collaborate with top CPAs, top top uh, tax-specific attorneys, and other estate planners, elder, elder uh, attorneys. But what we do is we set up like with cash value life insurance, you can set that up in a trust and you know, that trust, that that's tax-free money. Think of that. And if you buy a life insurance policy for pennies on a dollar, let's say you spent $1,000 a month on a life insurance policy. Well, your, your debt benefit depends how old, how old you are. It may be a million dollars. But think about this. It's tax deferred. You get your distributions tax-free. So it goes into the trust. And it comes out to your beneficiaries and you control it. This is what I say, controlling from the grave. As an example, let's say that you've got a few million dollars and you don't want your, your uh, kids to be trust babies. You know, it, right in that trust, if you have a job, I will pay you a same amount of money that you make in your job. I'm not going to pay you any more. I'm not going to pay any less. You can stair-step it, pay part, part of it at 20, 25, 30, 35, whatever. If they're going to school. And this this going to school and the other thing, big one that people are scared of, the kids are going to get into drugs. So I require any beneficiary to have a drug test every year or every six months. I mean, you can control from the grave, and that's what people need to do. They need to control their, their assets from the grave and make sure their assets are distributed the way that that you want as your, you know, as the individual. But people don't do this. Yeah. And uh it cost them millions of dollars. It's just like Joe Robbie. He owned Joe Robbie Stadium and the Miami Dolphins back in the seventies. His uh, estate was worth almost four hundred thousand, four hundred million dollars. His family got next to nothing because the government put it in probate, and it went on for a while. But they sold all the assets and the team to pay the taxes on the estate. The family was was left with next to nothing. 
So why do you think Joe Robbie did that? Huh? If he made all that money, why didn't he figure out how to make a, a big faux pas like that? Because they're not educated. And, you know, like I've said many, many times before, the stuff that I talk about on, on our podcast here, uh, it should be caught in high school, but it's not. And it's just like, uh, you know, the, the benefits of cash value life insurance, uh, fixed and fixed index annuities, how to become your own banker, how to become debt free for life, paying yourself compound interest and not, not the financial institution. That in itself is a huge, huge benefit for people if they would just learn how to do it. And they don't want to. So the best place to find information on you is to email you at strategicwealth0gmail.com or call you at 910-551-1046. Check out all your different YouTube channels, all these different things. So much content out there to show, hey, I can make money and I can have a debt-free retirement and I can have money and leave a legacy for my kids. All you need to do is contact Alan Porter today. Pre appreciate it, Alan. You betcha. You have a great day, okay? You too. That was the Strategic Wealth Strategies Podcast, guys. Take care. Tests and procedures, because by the time you finish your last sentence, the doctor will have already narrowed the list of potential diagnoses, which means fewer tests, fewer procedures, less of a need to follow up because the, the diagnosis is wrong, and less of a need to get drugs that interact with other things that are expensive and sometimes dangerous. Wow. Paul, any questions for the your, your book? Your book sounds amazingly interesting. I I, uh, I fully understand where you're coming from with the, with the the people don't talk. You know, they just sit there and say, "Well, you you guess what's wrong with me?" Basically, right? I mean, they don't mean that, but that's what happens there. So so I, I uh, applaud you for actually writing that, and and it sounds like a book that everyone should be re reading really before they go to the doctors. I think everybody can benefit, even if you don't have any chronic issues. There's going to be a time you go to the doctor with acute bronchitis or something. We all have to see doctors and nurse practitioners and physician assistants at times. So everybody is going to be a patient at some point in time, even doctors and nurses and so forth. We've had a very paternalistic healthcare system where the doctors would say, this is what you do. The patients would say yes or no. They may or may not do it. But the goal is to empower people. Once they feel empowered, then they're going to do better. If they can go into the doctor's office and give valuable information and feel confident the doctor got the diagnosis right, they're going to be more likely to follow through and get the test and get the prescription and so forth. Because when we partner with each other, it's not just doctor versus patient. It is doctor-patient. We're one. And that's the goal. And that's what the book helps people do. And that's the key thing is that when you start to really see health as wealth and how your health is an important thing, you look at things, you look at your tests, you look at what do I not want to do? How can I get better with certain chronic issues I might have or semi things that are going to become chronic and work on them now and then ask the expert, the doctor, the right questions. Don't let them lead the conversation. You lead the conversation, which can cause trouble sometimes, right? It can, but if a patient prepares and goes into the doctor's office with a prioritized list of issues, then it's going to be so much smoother because you don't know if your doctor comes in to see you and then gets a page, the person in the next room is having a stroke. You don't know what to expect. So when the doctor hits the door, then you start with what's the most important thing because you don't know how much time you're going to have. And once the doctor sees that you're organized, you know what you're talking about, he or she is going to be more respectful and feel like this is a partnership. And that is a win-win. So do you continue? Are you still practicing? No. A couple of years ago, I stepped back. I do administrative medicine, but I practice close to 30 years. And what, so basically now you're stepping back, you're doing more administration now? For yes, and I'm dealing more with health and wellness. I spent decades dealing with things after the fact. This person has cancer, this person has had a stroke and so forth. But I am very interested in how to decrease the risk of people getting there. One of the courses on my Patient World platform is taught by a doctor board certified in lifestyle medicine. And she goes through the six pillars that we now know can help prevent, treat, and even reverse diseases. And so instead of focusing on treating a disease once it occurs, we need to spend more time preventing it. 
And if you have it, there are times it can be reversed. People don't know that. People need this information so they can completely change their trajectory. They can completely change their lifespan. Life, um, their health span. Lifespan is how much time you live. Health span is how much of your life is spent in health. We want to be healthy. You can live to 100 and be sick, but you can live to 100 and be well. So the health span is vital. And that's the message. What do we need to do to turn it around? Because we're not going in the right direction. All right. So the best place people can find information is where can they go for the book? Amazon, all those different places. But where can we find Patient World? patientworld.net. All right. It's fantastic. Such a great idea. And I'm sure you're looking for more and more people like a Udemy to get their opportunity to be on this platform. What an opportunity. A lot of different things I'm thinking, especially as you're going to be a guest on DocTales as well. We appreciate you coming by. Thank you so much for having me. All right. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. And we'll be back in just a Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of a new podcast, Seniors Helping Seniors and the Neil Haley Show. I'm first excited to welcome the host of Seniors Helping Seniors, Paul Hollis. Paul, how are you? Thanks again for stopping by. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing great. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And our guest today is Dr. Joan Irvine. Uh, Dr. Joan, thanks for stopping by. And you help seniors in many, many ways. So you could just start out. How did that happen where you really focused your attention to helping seniors? Well, first of all, Look at me. I'm a senior. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I had spent many years in business and I spent like 20 years in online child protection technology. Uh, and so I'd done a lot of things and I was pivoting and I said, what is it that I want to do? And before I just worked with all age groups and I realized that I could be a good example for seniors and trying things on myself and then being able to pass on that information to other seniors. And that's really, I mean, it was just, it was a pivot and it was trying to figure out what to do and, you know, where I could be most useful. Great. So, so um, actually, you know, people, seniors are sort of living longer and doing more things these days and, uh, uh, and, and they're kind of having the best part of their, or good part of their life, you know? And so, um, what how how are you affecting them them helping them get get uh, the most out of of the, the of their age well can i say a lot i do a lot of things like um just re about 4 months ago um i fractured my ankle um and to say the least it was a real shock cuz i've never broken a bone before and I'm, I'm like a, a data nerd. So as soon as I did that, I immediately got online. You know, I, I checked with Dr. Google, as I always say, I found out everything I could. And then I write about it. And I found out, I was really shocked because the first thing they do is they say, well, you take for the pain and the inflammation, you do ibuprofen. Okay, I did that before I went to urgent care and et cetera. Well, I started doing more research and there was an article from NIH, the National Institute of Health, saying that ibuprofen actually interfered with your bone healing. Oh. No, I mean, I didn't know that. And here I was, I was taking ibuprofen when I needed it and I realized I was doing damage. And then I found out that collagen, not just calcium, but collagen was very important for your bone healing. And that I, I tripled the amount of collagen I was taking. Mm. So it's a lot of people don't do that. As I said, I'm a data nerd. So I do a lot of research and then I put it out there so people have an easier way of finding it. And also, since I come from like behavior modification background, I like to really make things simple. I go by the kiss, keep it simple and successful. And so you want to have it, it's like five plus or minus two items that people can comprehend. So I try to do my writings in that way so people can get it and it's not overwhelming because there's so much information out yeah you're not yeah there's so much out there that it, it's overwhelming and finally at one point you go oh my god I, you know I just don't want to deal with it anymore and that's not good for our health well, it's, it, not, it's, good, it's not it's not it's good sorry yeah. no, you go Paul. I, I was gonna say it's good it's good that you have you have uh, credentials you know as a, as a doctor and and because a lot of what's on the internet is 
let us just say misleading at best, right? So, yes. so coming from you would would be a, a wonderful thing, you know. Acknowledge it's like, oh, we, you know, we could trust you and and that sort of thing. So that's a great that's a great thing, a great attitude, way to do it. Well, thank you. I'm 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 really. It's kind of my my mission now to be able to put it out there. So let, yeah, let's talk about specifically that mission of all the different things you see again, seniors, if they want to keep living longer, like some will have, except when during COVID, we didn't see this. There are a lot of people are living a lot longer lives and are active a lot more than they were seniors mm-hmm. years ago that you see that mission, but they have to take care of themselves. And sometimes they're not yes. taking care of themselves. Right. Oh, can I say a lot, a lot don't, I mean, there are certain things like, first of all, getting involved in the community. I was always working and I was traveling. I used to be on the road 30 to 60% with my job. So I didn't have time. Now I live in a small town, Redondo Beach, California. I got involved. I did the chamber leadership program. I started a nonprofit where we go and we clean up along the water. Uh, so first of all, getting connected in the community and knowing that there's things that you can bring to your community. Uh, and it sounds very weird, but we go and we pick up trash and people stop and thank us picking up trash i know it sounds strange but it feels so good that you're getting this immediate gratification or acknowledgement of what you're doing so i think that is one one of the things that people need to do as seniors so they don't isolate themselves um and then also all the research i'm doing even you had mentioned you know about they're not people not taking you know kind of doing what they need to do you think of covid and COVID, we isolated because we were told it was the seniors, the elderly that were getting COVID. Well, they pushed that rather than the fact if you had underlying conditions, if you had diabetes to heart you know, problems, all these underlying conditions were really the issues. It wasn't just the age. And they scared all this, no, all the seniors. And so the seniors isolated and it was just terrible for their mental attitude and their mental health. No, it was te- it's definitely terrible. And they have to see and be with each other and interact yes. with each other. You were able to do it. How do you recommend other seniors do it that don't have the luxury of being part of a board or being in a volunteer group to get to, to be with other seniors and socialize? Well, first of all, do things like this. I mean, can I say Zoom boomed during COVID? You know, there were so many um, Zoom meetings that you could go to. All the local hospitals had it. We have a, a group called the Beach City Health District here in Redondo or in the South Bay in the beach cities where they were having Zoom meetings so that you could be doing your exercise. They'd have classes. They'd be talking about the issues. But you have to interact with other people. And the computer, I mean, I... We all have a love-hate relationship with the computer, but you know the computer really connected us with other people so that if we couldn't get out there, at least we could see people and we could talk to people, find out what's going on in the community. Totally. Go ahead, Paul. Excellent, excellent um, uh, advice. I mean, I hope I hope the seniors that are going to be watching this will will take this to heart and and actually do get out there and and uh, even if it's on a Zoom uh, to to start to start interacting and and get out there and and there's a big world out there that that needs to be investigated so so more power to you and 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 the things that you're doing. Oh, thank you, thank you. In fact, you'll appreciate this. Just yesterday, I I have a girlfriend that we've been walking every Monday morning at eight o'clock for about seven years, we go for a walk. And it's a great way that we get outside, we're by the beach, we talk about personal stuff, we talk about business, we talk about all these things. And for the first time, we saw this group of four women who were going out, they were in their wetsuits, they were going out ocean swimming. They were between late 60s and early 80s. And they were going to be swimming about two miles in the ocean. And I'm just going, ooh, that's really cold. I'm not going to do that. But what was most interesting is they only started doing this 14 years ago. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this woman who was 81, you know, she started doing this in her late 60s. 
Um, and so that you can be doing a lot of things where I, I, the way that I mean, I just get so annoyed with the media is that all of a sudden I mean, I'm going to tell you, I am 75. I just turned 75 years old. Not like 75. Wow. Yeah. I'm yeah. lucky. I'm, yeah. But also part of it is the college and part of it you is all, I mean, mm -hmm. all the things. I belong to a cycling club for five years. I used to do 100 miles a week with the cycling club. And I was one of the youngsters in the cycling club. <laughs> and um, But that you need to get out there and get the, that physical exercise is so important for us. And it doesn't have to be swimming two miles in the ocean. I mean, I, especially with the fractured ankle, you know, I do, you know, about 45 minutes. We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And I'm ex excited first to welcome my co-host, David Hollenbach of Hollenbach Leadership. David, how are you? I know you're excited about your our guest. And again, I was <laughs> giving him problems because he never picks the Steelers every year to go to the Super Bowl. <laughs> but David, thanks for stopping by. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. All right, we've got Sean Salisbury. Everyone knows him, NFL analyst. Remember in the days, ESPN, everything now with the Believe Podcast Network for the podcast. Sean, thanks for stopping by. And did you ever think, you know, with your career in the NFL, because we all know and how well you played in the pros and and also college, that you would be so well known as an, an NFL analyst. You're like one that you look <laughs> in that list of NFL analysts throughout the years that you would be so well known that everyone knows your name a lot of ways. Did you well, think that would happen for you? Well, you hope Neil, and thank you for having me on Dave. It's great to, great to see you. I appreciate you guys. And I'm always humbled when somebody has me on because I, you know, my mother, when she was alive, I still had to take the trash out at home. So I'm not even a household name in my own home, but um, yeah, you know what you go, it's, it's, it's strange. You know, when people see all those years you play football and you say, okay, somebody can talk to you about football or all the years you're doing something else an analyst. I mean, they do always remind everybody, you and John Clayton. I probably get that more in airports, you know, on four downs than anything we've ever done. I guess growing up, you know, my dad said, you're going to make it with your mouth and your right arm. You'll put that brain together. You don't want to do what I do. And he was a blue collar construction worker. So I get I never thought about it, Neil, to be honest with you, in the career. I was never in it. And maybe that helped to I hope somebody recognized me walk the airport. I always took it as a compliment because. It meant that I was doing good work. Now, not everybody that walked through the airport like you, like if I didn't pick your Steelers, not everybody liked what I had to say, but that's okay. I was never, I never made it personal. I, I always was, I tried to be fair to the player and not talk under the expert or over the person who may not have ever watched football. And I was always just, I, I like to say prepared my ass off, but I was fair and honest and transparent, but opinionated. That's what they paid me to do. So it's truth with my football career. You know, you always wish that I'd have won five Super Bowls and I'd have been, been a career like Big Ben or Tom Brady, but it didn't happen. I was able to play 10 years. And I guess the reason why people do is when I was on TV 12 years, it felt like every day, probably people got like, I'm tired of seeing this cat on TV, but I worked at it and I think I was respectful. And when you've played it, but also respectful of the players, but also not afraid to criticize or compliment. I, 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 I always guys, and I'll just tell you this real quick. When I went on television, this is honest to God truth from the day one. I had my boss tell me, tell me something I don't know. And you don't have to get everything in in one show because NFL Live was five days a week. And so my goal was to just try to be great at try to be great at it. Good first and great and get a clue and learn from Dan Patrick and Stuart Scott and Rich Eisen and Mike Tirico, the, fun, the, the best of the best on how to do television, the mechanics, because I knew I would always be prepared. And so when they when they put you on there and the boss said, tell me something I don't know and you don't have to get it all in. And I, I learned a great deal that day to just look into the camera and pound hard one or two topics. And it worked. But I never went in thinking I got to do this to be popular. I did it to be good. And I every single show for 12 years I went on. And this is I promise you as I'm sitting here. My first thought was if Bill Belichick is watching. What would he say? And that's truth. I, in my mind. I wanted to know whether he was or wasn't. Was I saying something where he'd say that guy's full of crap or OK, now he knows he because I said, well, if, if you want to play quarterback, you want to be Brady. If you want to be coach, if it's now you want Andy Reid or you want Bill Belichick, you want to make sure that those guys. And then I always wanted to teach that if somebody that was watching for the first time tuned in, would I be able to teach them something? So but to make a long, a great question 
too long. I, I never thought about being more popular in any of it. I wanted to be good. And it turns out when you're in a coat and tie on TV every day, you seem to get noticed more than you do behind a helmet. Plus, I was probably a little bit better at talking it than throwing it. So I understand that. Well, but it's just, it's just great to continue to have that career of life after football and so many people have those props. Go ahead, David. Right, what sure. do you want to ask Sean before we go into the league podcast? Because we have a short time with him. But go ahead, David, with your question. No, the, the one question that, that came up as you were talking was, you know, through your career, you've held these leadership positions, you know, being a quarterback in your college career and the NFL. And, and then now you're in a role where you're passing on knowledge through your career. You've had to pick up bits of wisdom. What is one piece of wisdom that you've made your own and passed on to others? Uh, a lot of them. And you'll look, Dave, behind me, and I can't see them. I'm getting my office, but about 30 or bu- of the books behind me are all leadership books, mm. books I've learned. And, and I, you guys know this, Neil and Dave, you take something good from somebody all the time. You know, a guy, oh, this is good. This is great. Five of those pieces. And then you learn what you'd like to, like, get the clutter out, right? I, I guess, you know, first off, I'm going to tell you the greatest advice I ever got when interviewing people. And I think that's a great, you know, you, we do it all the time on our shows, right? Guys, no matter what we, how do, how do get people to feel comfortable? And there is an art to it that we still try to master. And I, I believe Dan Patrick's the best interviewer I've ever I learned so much from Dan Patrick. So Listen, it's, it's an honor to say that I'm going to go back to you and then we'll go back and forth just because, man, I learned from Mike Golick, Dan yep. Patrick morning show i never thought i'd be sitting here talking to sean salzberg well, i did not I, I did not i didn't and i never thought i'd get the chance to interview mike Gork, which i got to and i well, said we should be talking I, to you and saying what do you you're 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 do a great job so we're we're honored to be on with yeah, you so okay. but i mean i just learned from you guys i sat and work doing a job i didn't like listening to all you guys on the radio or on television and saying and i just created my own thing but i never thought that would happen so Someday, and I have dreams beyond dreams, but you're right. You pick up those different wisdom, but go ahead, go back. And we still, and I'm, I'm with you. We, we, I, I'm the same way. I still think like a kid, like I want to learn from that. And here at my age, I still believe that the best part of my career is still in front of me because while we all talk, I, I learned a long time ago that to have two ears and one mouth and when smarter people are talking to use them accordingly. But Dave, I, I love the question and I think about it all the time. And when it comes to the interview part, I remember I was doing an interview with Dan when I was doing his show, he and Rob Dibble and I, and I asked a question because it was in my infancy of this career. Normally it's used to being asked the question. And I, and I asked the question and it was too long. I didn't know it was too long. And I, you ask the question and then you try to tell the person you're interviewing what you know, and then you re-ask the question. So we got done and Dan and I went and Dan took me aside. He goes, let me give you a little, little, and as Dan, as only Dan can, and he's one of my best friends in the world as we develop that relationship. But, He said, listen, he goes, you have a guest on for a reason. He goes, think about the questions of why, how, when. He goes, sometimes that's the best response. So he goes, you don't have to tell everybody. We got the guest on. You can talk about it when the guest is done. We go back and talk. Utilize it. Get as many questions as you can. So I learned to be very minimalist in in interviewing. Like in a game, you watch Pat Summerall. Summerall was so good at just down and distance. The play, Madden went crazy, you know, did his thing. And I watched Dan, and Dan has a way of getting a, a guy comfortable early, asking him a question that's not four questions in one and going, you know, belaboring a point. He asks the question, the guy answers it, Dan retees. And the key is Dan listens during an interview. And so I learned instead of write 40 questions down, which I don't write them down anymore, the initial one, and then I'm feeding off a guy and say, okay, because you miss too much if you're too worried about the next one you miss out on what what you may be pouncing on. So I learned to interview, and, and I'm not good at much, but I've learned to be a good interviewer because the guy I have on, he's a guest for a reason. And and Dan, there there will not be a better sports interviewer than Dan Patrick. There may be a lot that are, there's a lot that are really good. So that's one piece of wisdom. And, and I guess for me that knowing that I wasn't a first-round draft pick in this business, how was I going to carve it to where I was looked at as a first-round analyst or a first-rate analyst. I had been don't just whatever you control, what I can control in my preparation and in my opinion. And if you're afraid in this business to give a strong opinion, 
then you will wilt and, and go away and never make it personal. So those things I've applied and these books behind me, there's a quote here or this. And I always learned that if you're going to be a great leader, don't tell them how to do it. Show them first. Yeah. And I've tried to do that. And in the second part of it, I, I think that it's important that I've learned how to manage tasks and lead people. And there is a difference. I don't manage people. I manage tasks and lead people. So it comes from different areas, but I think I probably learned more about the business just watching and listening to Dan and tough love from Dan. And then the analyst part, watching great analysts that pound it, and do it, and get it done right. And you, you take something good from everybody. And I know there's a lot smarter people in the room than me. So it's been a great benefit for my career. I mean, you've worked with so many different people at ESPN, Sean. I mean, you met, I, I couldn't imagine being in Connecticut and who you've met and what celebrities and what huge, huge superstars, which I consider you like uh, one of those people when you mentioned that name. What When you talked about leadership, what leaders are you learning from? And are you looking to try to carve out some of these leaders and be your next part of your career, speaking and motivating people? Are you on that route, like a Lou Holtz or different things of how some of these people, what they've done? What leaders are you reading books from and where do you see yourself going? I, I'm, I appreciate that. And yes, it real quick, it is. But think about the gauntlet of talent that I was for 12 years. Man. Dan, Mike Golix, Mike Greenberg, Stuart Scott, Rich Eisen, Michael Irvin was there, Mike Golick, Mark Schlereth. Uh, it's Kenny Main, John Butchie Gross, John Anderson, Carl Ravitch. I mean, it, it is, quite frankly, it's an embarrassment of riches in town. Susie Culber, Linda Cohn both Hall of Famers in my mind. I mean, it goes on, and it doesn't stop there. The people behind the scenes that pushed you and put you in position to be successful, like the intern or the production assistant who sprints down the hallway to make sure the highlight is ready for you and doesn't get mentioned unless you take them to dinner and, in truth, is going to own and run their own business someday and be a star. I, I can tell you the talent that I ran across in that building was not only in front of the camera behind, it was off the charts. And as far as, you know, great, I'm a, a Stephen Covey and I do, I read them all, whether it's oh. the best year ever, whether it's the mind of a leader, trust and inspire by Stephen Covey's son, which was one of the best books I've ever read. Leaders eat last by sign. I mean, but uh, uh, kind. And I, I mean, I, and I read them all. They're not just there. You know how you get it. You open up, you got a briefcase and there's a sandwich in it. I do read them all. And I just got my master's degree at 59 years old from Texas A&M last December. Oh, congrats. I promised, my, I promised my mother and father that I was going to go get, and it's in, it's in the, you know, uh, sport management division. I promised my mom and dad at USC's graduation. I was going back to get my master's. I finished it in a little more than a year and a half. Both of them have passed away. My mother was alive when I started it. And so I, I got that. And that goes back to Dave, what you're talking about, Neil, about leadership and taking something. So yes, I actually, the next part of my career would love to write a feel good book about how to hit rock bottom and bounce back up and take something from leaders. But for me, public speaking, I would love to be in a speaker's bureau where I go around doing 40 of those a year. Because I have no idea why you've not done it yet. You're, well, you're... Between coaching quarterbacks and this, I want to, and I, I, I haven't pushed it enough, but now with this, I don't know, I guess a master's degree, maybe people think I'm smarter, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I just worked at it. So hopefully I can apply it, but that is the next level. I've been fortunate to do great, you know, TV and radio and still doing it and able to teach quarterbacks and train them. But yeah. I have a, I have a burning desire and a yearning to, to, to go and stand it. And I've done, you know, some fortune 500 speeches as a player and early on at ESPN, but I am so committed to learning and teaching now again, that I would love to start doing it. And hopefully there's a step there that the next step where it's a consistent thing, not just, you know, eight of them a year. I would love to help you. We're going to definitely talk off air. Carl Mecklenburg is the best at this. He phenomenal. does a phenomenal job at it. But again, I think you should be on go on Gary V's show, and that would get you even more knowledge now with the younger generation. And Gary V would talk about the Jets. You need to reach out to him. That's my I'm take. All, I'm all in. Fair enough. Oh yeah, but we have to like definitely said, talk about I'm, it because I'm, the new I'm digital... not too proud to beg, brother. I'm not. Too okay, proud okay, to beg. okay, in. okay. All right, David. Next question. I I, I let our last guest, who's an Emmy Award music guy, coming on next. But let's go, David, with one more question before we talk about the Believe Podcast Network with Sean. Go ahead, Dave. So my next question was about the podcast. You know how he ended up. Well, I'll just ask: How did you end up? doing a podcast and and 
what do you like more being in front of the camera or you know hosting a podcast show what a, what, a, what a, I've bowled that over a lot. I think we all like, as we joke around when we were at ESPN, we say, man, we got to have the moneymaker on TV, right? When in truth, it's it's not much of a moneymaker. But I, I, I loved the urgency of live television, Dave. Loved it. Where the lights, I can, real quick story. On Monday Night Countdown, sitting in Chris Berman, as we know, one of the guys, the, a legend, and to show you how good he is, I can remember we were getting ready to do Monday Night Countdown. And I was there. It was in the middle of my career at ESPN. And the director's in my ear says, Sean, is Boomer in studio yet? And on a live show, when it says 6 o'clock, it doesn't mean 6.01, right? It's We're going it live, and it ends at the right time. And I said, no, he's not in yet. He'll be here. I said, you know, he'll be here. And Boomer, you know, the ties to the right. and He's putting the jacket on, and you're like, he's frazzled. He's. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.